The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to today's Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Megan Miller, the host of today's podcast and head of content partnerships at Provoke Media. I'm here today with Ricky Fairley, survivor and thriver of CEO of and CEO of Touch, the Black Breast Cancer Alliance, and Dina Albanese, Vice President and Co-Chair of the DE&I Committee at CoinPR. Um, in today's episode, we are exploring companies who are embracing multiculturalism and, appro- and, approaching, and approaching their audiences with renewed recognition and celebration of their differences. This is especially true in the healthcare space where there's a growing recognition for the need to create culturally relevant campaigns that speak to all audiences. Dina and Ricky, thank you so much for being here today. Um, Ricky, if you mind just telling us a little bit about your your role and your work with the Black Breast Cancer Alliance and um, sort of how you've come into this conversation, that would be great. Sure, Um, I'm a 10 year survivor of triple negative breast cancer and um, it's the worst one, you probably haven't heard of it, but it has the highest mortality rate and black women get it at three times the rate. Um, and, um, so when I got sick and my doctor gave me two years to live and I'm on 10, I took it as God giving me a purpose to do this work. And I know that he left me here to do this work and I can talk more about my story later, but, um, it's so important to, um, address the needs of black breast cancer. My, my foundation's mission is to eradicate black breast cancer. It's a different disease. Now, there's now a growing body of science that validates that a black breast cancer cell looks different from a white breast cancer cell. And our mortality rate is 41% higher than white women. Thank you so much. Um, and Dina, let's talk a little bit about the industry and how it's adapting to multiculturalism. Um, and especially how you've been experiencing that uh, in your practice um, at COIN and then in industry-wide as the PR practice in the United States. Sure. Um, so I actually um, love the term multiculturalism. I, I moved to the U.S. from uh, my island of Puerto Rico um, about 15 years ago. And so I, you know, I've seen that transition of where we were more than a decade ago to where we are here. And I think it's wonderful that we're embracing everyone's culture and where they stand as a person. And we see that intersection of we're not only one thing, we are many things. Uh, So I'm not only a woman, I'm a Puerto Rican woman, I'm also a mother, you know, I I am so many more things than just that one single category that's traditionally used to identify people. Um, So in public relations, I I think it's great the transition that we've seen over the past few years, particularly in the healthcare space. I think COVID brought to everyone's attention the need to have health equity, to bring us all together into the journey of being healthy. We cannot all be healthy if some of us are not. And that's true for COVID, but that's also true for every other disease that there is. And I think from our perspective as PR professionals, our job is to take insights from the communities. And Ricky is one of those people that that we go to, to hear what the community is saying, um, to listen to the advocates as the voices of patients and bring that insight into the campaigns we do. 
And so I'm very passionate about it because I lived through it, right? I, I go to doctor's appointment for myself, for my children, and I see the disconnect between one culture and the other, how difficult it is to translate medical terms and also, you know, cultural aspects of, of who you are into that medical conversation. I, I think that's part of what we need to do as PR professionals. And you've spoken about, I mean, the the concept and the 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 theory is patients are the voice of trust. We've heard this before, um, but it's becoming what seems to be like more prominent and and um, critical than ever before. Um, so it's interesting to know about the relationship that you and Ricky have kind of fostered over the years um, as this source of truth. Um, and Ricky, I'm just so interested to hear from you, like we've kind of heard from this agency side, but from an organizational side, what does this effort to, um, the, the efforts that that um, Dina is talking about in the PR industry, how have you seen those evolve and change in your work? And then how are you applying them within your organization? Well, I think, you know, the concept of multiculturalism isn't a new one, right? But I think it's evolved over the years from just kind of putting the Black person and the Hispanic person, the Asian person in the ad and just translating the language if that's what it is. It really is even beyond cultural relevance, which is a term a lot of people use. I believe that what we really need to do is have cultural humility. Mm-hmm. And so it's beyond just being relevant, but it's really taking a real hard look at understanding the culture, what the nuances are, what makes people different and what keeps them alike and finding that common ground. But it's cultural humility that we have to strive for, I think in all of our marketing efforts and especially when we talk about health. Yeah. And when you're, when you are looking at how um, your own organization is doing that, what are some of the ways, like the very tangible ways that you've seen that demonstrated and that you are, kind of working towards that um, humility, if you will, the cultural humility. Sure, so so um, black women have a 41% higher mortality rate than white women of breast cancer. We have a 39% higher recurrence rate than white women. Black women under 35 get breast cancer at twice the rate of white women die at three times the rate. It's the most severe disease for us. And why is this happening? Well, it's happening because there's a growing body of research that's validating that a black breast cancer cell looks different than a white breast cancer cell. So guess what? The drugs aren't working. So, and if you look back in history, which we've done, um, the drugs that are currently standard of care were not tested on black bodies 20 and 30 and whatever, even 10 years ago. And even now we only have a 3% participation rate in clinical trials for drug development. And so until we get more black women into research, we're gonna keep dying. We're not gonna have the drugs that we need. Like we have to work towards that bottle that says on the label, this drug is for black women. So there's a lot of stuff around clinical trial participation. You know, and I think everybody's struggling with that whole concept because we're not participating as black women. And clearly we know about all of the earned medical mistrust from head and relax, the syphilis study, all that stuff. We know about the social determinants of health. But last year I I embarked upon doing a research study, a market research study to understand the psyche of a black woman, of a black breastie. Like what is in her head? What is is driving her behavior to have fear of clinical trials? And what I learned was two major things. First of all, 
We don't trust anyone. And the voice of trust is a breastie. Is me another breastie. It's a club that you don't want to be in, but once you're in it, it's unconditional love and trust. So whatever medical information that's really going to make a difference in somebody's life has to come from a breastie. We also learned that their fear of clinical trials was based on lack of knowledge. So think about any time you're afraid of something, whether it's afraid of like jumping in a pool or do, doing something, the fear is based on not knowing what it is, what, what it's about, right? So when you, when you don't know what something's about, you're afraid, it's natural. So the fear of clinical trials is they don't understand how it works. They think you're gonna get the sugar pill and die. There is no sugar pill in cancer research. They think you, you know, they don't understand that, yeah, that Advil you took last week was in a clinical trial. Really? That was in a clinical trial. That antibiotic you gave your dog was in a clinical trial. They don't know basic, basic things about what standard of care is and that you get better care in a trial. And I learned very quickly in our research that I could convince them from one, I'll never do a trial to five, sign me up in five minutes with information from me, the breastie. So it's the yeah. voice. And it's, the, it's the, the education and also how to advocate for yourself because black women aren't invited to trials by doctors. So how do you stand up and say, hold on, wait a minute, is, is there a clinical trial that's available for me for my care? And so we did a lot, a lot of research. We talked to 300 black women to really understand these dynamics to build a marketing platform that we now have. It's called whenwetrial.org, but it's for breasties, with breasties, about breasties, you know, made by breasties. And so it's all the science wrapped around in a lot of breasty love and hugs. I and that's, yeah. but we had to have the cultural humility to understand what was really needed, what was going on in their head to make them feel good about it. And we've already signed up about 400 women for clinical trials in two months. Phenomenal. Um, and Dina, like it's, I mean, it's apparent right now in this conversation, just how critical having, um, I wouldn't say like allies, but people who are really your partner in messaging um, in, in the PR space for extending important messages and important information about healthcare in all facets of healthcare. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in hearing more about um, some of the campaigns that you've worked on um, at COIN and um, that have really like leveraged the power of a patient and leverage the power of a trusted voice in this partnership sort of capacity? I think one of the things that we try to do um, as a team here in, in the healthcare uh, group is um, take all of that science and all of those complicated things that, that seem distant from us as you know, regular people, because we're not researchers, we're not scientists, we're, most of us are not doctors. Um, so our job is to talk to all of these experts and, and sciencey people and bring all of that content into a level that is understandable for the patient. Um, so one of the things that we really like to do at COIN is push ourselves, and, and I love the term that Ricky uses, um, and I've been, uh, you know, sharing it with everyone at the agency about cultural humility. It's that idea that really cultural competence is, is no longer relevant because it sort of speaks to an endpoint when really we're talking about a journey, right? Having the humility to understand yourself, your biases, 
we all have them. We all have them in our head growing up. You know, it's natural. We have to understand that they're there. And then once you identify them, you know, educate yourself. Is this true? Is, you know, what is behind this? Um, and so that's one of the things that we like to do at point where we're pushing ourselves to have cultural humility. And at the same time, work with clients to when they're reaching, uh, you know, audiences that are diverse, then we're pushing to transcreate campaigns. So that's not like Ricky was saying, it's not about translating. It's, it's not, not merely that aspect of language, it's transcreating something that maybe you're thinking like this is a strategy and this is the campaign that fits into like that general audience, which is code really for not addressing the needs of everyone in your audience um, and creating something new that speaks to each person. So we're very passionate about that. Uh, I, and, I, and I love working with Ricky and people like her who are advocating for patients every day because they need to be part of the equation to solve for better health outcomes and to meet the needs of you know, patients where they are and, and, and hear what it is that they need. Have you had any um, experiences or, or campaigns where whether it was other types of cancer or whether it was like nutritional based uh, topics or other spaces within the health sphere where you've been able to leverage partners like Ricky, who maybe come from a different experiential background? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think um, we, we, we do it um, to educate internally the clients who need, you know, the advocacy work so that they can better understand and then move that into action uh, as part of their organization. And also for, you know, campaigns that go out to patients and, and having those voices from the advocates um, is super important. Um, you know, I think, so I, some years ago, I worked on this uh, campaign where we were educating um, Hispanics on um, ways to find, uh, you know, a, a better path to get affordable access to medications. And one of the things that, um, you know, we did was uh, bring that information into what was called, um, you know, is called Promotores de Salud. So it's sort of like an ambassador program where you're educating, you know, people within the community so they can then share the information with others in the community. We know that works well for people, you know, in, in the Hispanic community. We're very familiar. We're, you know, we love our communities. We're out there. And that's, that's a good example of someone who's doing it right um, because they're connecting in a way that feels natural and is authentic for that community. So, so well put. Thank you. Um, I can give you an example, Megan, oh, if you thank want. Thank you. I was going to ask. Um, that. <laughs> um, so I was asked, you know, I serve on a lot of um, pharma kind of patient advisory boards. And um, so I was asked to critique um, an ad campaign late, earlier this week, actually. Um, and um, um, I happened to know the breastie in the in the campaign. They were showing me they interviewed her and had an interview. And so so um, they made this, you know, beautiful interview, this beautiful video of like, you know, she has triple negative breast cancer. She's metastatic. She has five daughters who are precious, precious jewels. And I know her very well. And so they had this woman kind of walking down a path in the street, um, 
telling her story with a voiceover. And I said, first of all, you left, you lost the opportunity to depict this amazing, fiery, badass breastie. If you look at her Instagram, you'll see that she's like a crazy girl and she's living her life to the fullest at age 36 which, with metastatic breast cancer, but she's hanging with her kids. Like her Instagram is like crazy. It's like adorable every day. And um, they've made this video that could have been a white woman, any woman. There was nothing black about it. And there was definitely nothing Delta about it. So if you really want to capture the essence of this breastie to, to talk about your drug or whatever you're doing, whatever therapy you're talking about, really take advantage of the person and look at what they're doing and look at their life. And I'm sure it's because I had to say it, the people at the agency that made the video were white. They didn't get her. And, and I said, if you had a black director, they would have made a different video. Hate to say that, or, or someone with cultural humiliated, they would have made a different video and it's a fine video. It's great. But you, you lost the opportunity to tell a really, really compelling story and engage your audience. Mm -hmm. Um, so we know safe campaigns don't change the status quo. And I think that's segues very well into like what a safe campaign might've been, but it, it's, it's not really safe for everyone. It, it talks about that, that, um, I think Dina, if, if it was before this, this conversation or, or in this one, but when we were talking, you were using the example of like, if not everyone is served, it's not the all. And it, and it really feels very much on par with that. And um, I don't know if you have anything that you wanted to like, ex you know, expand on, on that, on that subject of the safe campaigns and, and what it feels like to break that status quo. I think we're very privileged when we get to work with clients who are, are willing to dare. Um, and, you know, there's, there's this saying, um, it's very famous, it's in Spanish, but I'll say it here and I'll try to translate. So it's, uh, de los cobardes no se ha escrito nada, which basically mean, means like, you know, history is written by people who are brave. And I think um, more and more we're seeing clients who are willing to recognize that what has been done in the past hasn't worked and needs to change. And I think Ricky has just provided a beautiful example of exactly what we mean when we say we need to transcreate. Um, it's, you know, people, we, we, all, we all do this, right? We're, we have a tendency to fall back into the template that we use for something else. So if it looked great for a different campaign that this woman was, you know, walking down, I'm sorry about the light. Um, <laughs> this woman was walking down, you know, the path of this nicely, uh, you know, uh, landscape streets and beautiful houses. And if it worked for that campaign, then it has to work for this one. Well, maybe this population doesn't live in that street that you're, you know, have that setting. And, and it's, 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 it's tricky. I know it's tricky because you don't wanna create stereotypes and you don't wanna fall back into things that may be perceived as, you know, like, oh, what are you saying? Are you saying that my community is this or that? And that's why you need to bring in people who are authentically from that community. So, you know, to keep it real, to keep it authentic. 
Um, but you have to dare. And I think it's so great when you find clients who are willing to say, let's stop what we did before. Let's not look at that. Tell me what it is that I need to do and do it well for the next time. And, and I think, you know, bringing people uh, like Ricky again um, as advocates, uh, particularly in the healthcare space is so important. We need the patient voice. We need the cultural representation at the agency. And, you know, that translates into the campaigns. Um, and, and we need to do this because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do from an agency perspective, yes, but it's also the right thing to do from a society perspective. We all need to do better and it's a work in progress. So we're gonna make mistakes. And I think people appreciate that and recognize that when mistakes are done, they are quickly you know, handled and, and you know, just take it as a learning experience to do better. But again, if we don't risk it, we won't get to that better place that we all feel we should be. Um, it, it certainly feels like in this kind of moment of reckoning that we're all living through right now, um, as it's kind of been become, come to be known as, um, this is obviously such a more prominent conversation or it's taken up so much more attention today than perhaps five years ago or 10 years ago when we first started talking about disparities and, and information gaps and things of that nature. I'm so interested when I think back to like some of the very original, like early um, PR healthcare campaigns that crossed different uh, cultures with like, I'm, I'm reminded of the barbershop conversations, um, which I think we've we've all probably heard of in some sort of case studies. And I'm, I'm really interested to know as these years have gone by, like what has evolved with the campaigns and like, what are some of the learnings that continue to, to apply each time? And, and what are some of the things that have stayed the same or, or that will continue to stay the same? Either one of you, sorry. I, I maybe, maybe, um, Ricky, if you want to take it first. Go, go, Dina has a, a thought. I can see it in her eyes. Go for it. <laughs> I'll follow you up. I always have a thought. I just, I, I just, okay. I, I can see it taken up there, girl. Go, go for it. Listen, I, I, I've seen it uh, develop from a, so, you know, I, I first, before I worked in PR, I worked for 10 years as a reporter. I was, I, I always felt that, you know, I wanted to be a journalist because I wanted to advocate for people. And then I became an attorney because I wanted to advocate for people. And then I'm doing this. I think this is the best way where you can advocate for patients and for communities because you can change how people perceive each other, how they consume information that is Again, life and death information. Like we want everyone to be healthier, to have healthier outcomes. And I don't think we can do that by doing the same old, same old that has been done in the past. So I feel that the people who are doing it correctly are those who are building the campaigns from the ground up addressing the needs of all the patient communities they serve. So that means that you need to look at yourself and understand what are, what are the people in need? Are, are my drugs, to Ricky's point, really addressing the needs of everyone? And if they're not, take it, 
take it from there, you know, change what you're doing from the foundation up. And that way, when you're at the end of, you know, that, that funnel, what you have is an outcome that will be able to help all patients, all patient communities. And our job will be easier from a PR perspective because, you know, it's, it's all served up, you know. Um, so sorry, uh, Ricky, you can go. <laughs> okay, um, and you said it, you said it so eloquently, babe, but, um, you know, there are a lot of sick people, a lot of sick black people, a lot of sick Hispanic people, right? A lot of sick people. So, so when I look at stuff that pharma is doing, I'm like, you know, I hate to tell you this, but your baby's ugly. It didn't work. <laughs> and I think that now because of COVID has outlined or highlighted all of a sudden that yes, there are health disparities and maybe, maybe our stuff isn't working. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because now we can flip it over, flip it upside down or throw it out the window and bring something new in, right? Because, you know, when you see, when you see the effects of how a, like a campaign that would have historically worked or, or not even worked was now saying, oh my God, it's not working. People aren't taking the vaccine or whatever it is, right? Whatever the issue is. And so I love that. I feel like now we all have a seat at the table where we can say, hold on a minute, I'll give you a hug, but your but your baby's ugly and it's not working. <laughs> and also in social media, you can't lie. You know, I mean, you know, you know, I, I grew up in the old days of marketing when, you know, with David Ogilvy, you know, half of my advertising works. I wish I knew which half, right? Because you could measure it back in like in the, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, right? But now you can see how many clicks you got on the Facebook ad. You can see how many clicks you got on the Google ad. So instantly. And so you can see that something is or is not working. And I love that. So we now have sort of instant gratification to get results. And I think now companies are seeing, gosh, you know, we didn't get any clicks on that. Well, it sucked. So fix it. And so, and also we have comments. We have a, 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 almost a direct line to consumers. They hold their phones in their hands all day, right? And they're telling you, hold on, wait a minute. Here's my feedback on that. And that's a good thing. So all that feedback is just leading to better communication and answering the questions that we need. And so I love the fact that we have a digital world now in marketing that we can, we can get feedback from patients, from consumers and, and really understand what, what, you know, what's going on with our work and see whether it's not working or not. And, and I think also we're now as, as marketers being more open-minded to saying, you know, that stuff that we did last year, is not working. And here's the data. Yeah. When you, when we were talking, when, you know, the common thread here, the red thread that we've all been seeing is like patients as the voice of trust and, and those who've experienced something are so much more valuable in a conversation as a partner. And I'm interested in, in just exploring a bit about like what, what level of grassroots will always be there and what level of the digital world, like, will we always have a balance of a little of everything or in this um, space where trust and relationships are so critical to the effectiveness of campaigns, will, will there always need to be, or do you foresee there will always need to be that in-person grassroots sort of conversational component? I'll take that one if that's okay. Yeah. Um, you'll never be able to replace the touch of another patient to a patient. That's the most valuable communication you can get and um, you'll never replace that. We're doing a roadshow with our When We Trial campaign so we can touch people and be where they live, work, play, and pray. I want to be where every Black woman lives, works, lives, works plays, and prays. Um, so you can't replace that. I think that 
we can try to mimic it a little bit in digital marketing and say you know, by sh the sharing concept. Um, and if you do it well, it will get shared. Um, but that word of mouth, and I think we've lacked that with COVID for the past two years, we haven't been able to do experiential marketing and go to events and talk to people and touch people. Um, so that's all got to come back. And I think it'll come back richer now because, because digital was like a thing and eventual like a thing, but now they're integrated. So we can, if, if we're smart enough, we'll figure out how to integrate those two tactics in a way that's going to really exacerbate the, the audience and make them more engaged. So, you know, I worked at Coke, I ran marketing Coke for many years. And so one of the things we used to word, use the word intervention. So an intervention is when you have an encounter with a, with a consumer or a patient and they walk away and make a behavior change. You want to intervene into their lives. You just want to get awareness. Awareness gets you nothing. Awareness is a pretty picture, but you want to have a behavior change or an action change or a perception change. And that comes from an intervention. So everything we do, you have to, you know, not only reach them, but touch them in a way that they're going to walk away and do something different. And in health, we need them to do something different. We need them to take this information to heart. I don't, I, you know, I don't want anybody to buy, die of breast cancer, but I have to get breast, you know, black women, you know, um, mortality rate, morta mortality rate parity for black women. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not acceptable. And we all, you know, I think we're all dealing with, with, with every disease. So I'll shut up. Oh, <laughs> please no. don't, please don't yeah. ever. Yeah. <laughs> you hit me like on all my, you know. <laughs> I, I do I do agree with Ricky. I think there is that's the challenge for us. Um, we need to come to a place where both things work together. Um, I think there are patient communities that actually need the digital space to connect, that it may be easier for them to find those resources to then get them to connect in person. Um, but like, for example, we work with clients in the mental health space where we know it may be easier or, you know, it may be an easier path for the patient um, to connect with others digitally for, for various reasons, right? Um, so our job, our challenge is to make that connection, that personal connection that will make the patient thrive and have better um, health outcomes through both ways, right? The personal touch, but also the digital aspect. So I agree with, with Ricky. I, I think after COVID, we definitely need to come to terms with it. Both things need to coexist, even though we know that of course, the you know personal connection face-to-face -face can so far not be achieved other than face-to-face. -face. Yeah. I think also Megan, you know, mm -hmm. We know everybody has a smartphone and not every, you know, but, but I still think as we talk about telemedicine, telehealth and digital outreach, we still have to keep in, keep under consideration that, that there are some limitations of reach. So there are a lot of, you know, people of color who are unsupported people. I call them not underserved. I hate that word unsupported people who may live in a rural area and they may have, have a cell phone or a smartphone, but guess what? They may not have the bandwidth to watch a video or the bandwidth to do a telehealth visit. And that cell phone is really the computer for the household. That's how that mama takes care of her three kids as a single mom and keeps track of them. So, so as we think about even the digital side, we have to figure out how to make still, still make sure the access is there. Right. And sure people can kind of can, can get our messaging. 
in a way that's effective. So absolutely. I love it, Ricky. I know we got to wrap up probably, Megan, but I just, I'll just say that I, I do, I feel so strongly about, you know, when you're offering telehealth and, and telemedicine in general, like, did you consider that that person may not have a private space in their right. home right. with a right. private device for them to have this very intimate conversation with the right. other Right. Every time I see that, it's like, it's such a disconnected reality from from what I know, you know, my family, uh, you know, has and, and, and from the people around me growing up. So mm-hmm. I just think that that's one really yeah. important that's aspect that sometimes it gets lost in translation. Yeah. 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 For sure. Absolutely. Well, to your point, Dina, and I, I hate to wrap this one up because it's like just getting good. Um, but in the interest of, of time here, um, some takeaways for uh, other brands as they, you know, enter this space and they, you know, seek to make fewer mistakes and more gains and be more successful in the process um, in your career doing this across all aspects of it. Um, Any like key tips for how brands might best address multiculturalism throughout their campaigns and their messaging and, and um, tactics there? For myself, uh, I will say that um, from my perspective, there's, there's no way to fake this. You have to to be able to communicate with communities um, with diverse cultural backgrounds, you have to be authentic and you have to be authentic from the beginning. And that means expanding the team that you work with to make sure that everyone's voice is represented and that every perspective is there. There, there's no way around it. You cannot fake yourself, uh, fake the campaign to be something else than it was, uh, you know, in the origin. So, um, be bring in diverse voices and just be mindful of that, particularly in the healthcare space. I would just add to that. That's yeah. very eloquent. I would just add: start with the patient. Mm-hmm. If you listen, you will hear them because they will tell you what they need. But you have to start with opening the opening the door for that that conversation, and and making them feel comfortable enough to talk to you, with the right people in the room. And but if you listen, you will hear what they need and what's going to motivate them. I learned that very you know quickly in my research about clinical trials, and you know I heard them. I took what they said. I crafted a message around it, and now I'm getting people to sign up. But I listened to a lot of women talk about it, and I heard them. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, both of you have just kind of touched on, I think a third, third takeaway, which is with the right people in the room and with the right access to the, to the modes of communication. So being mindful of literally physically who's in the room on zoom or on a a health, you know, channel on your, on your, my chart app, or, um, you know, in the room, in that patient, in that patient room physically too. Right. Well, this has been wonderful, a conversation that will go long beyond ours, um, but I'm really glad that all three of us had the chance today to connect and learn and, um, and, and share some stories. It was a wonderful 
conversation with both of you. Thank you both, Dina and Ricky. Um, this is the Provoke Media Podcast. Thanks. I had one thing. I would be yeah. remiss if I didn't say, if I, if I didn't say, check the breasts that you love. I know you have a pair. Thank you. The best message to end on. You've been listening to the Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.